James shows us a faith that works. Here we go. You guys ready? This is the highlight of my week, by the way. I love coming together with you guys and hanging out with you and worshiping God in song and then in Scripture, the study of His Word. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to James chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 27, Faith That Works is our current teaching series. We're going to talk about Scripture this morning, the Bible, God's Word. Also grab your sermon notes out. You can follow along. I've got some questions I'd like to ask you just to kind of think about this a little bit to set up our teaching this morning. Look on your notes there. If, if we were born again through the Spirit of God, if we have been born again through the Spirit of God, making the Word of God alive to our heart. That's what happens when we're born again. Verse 18, we studied that last week. We'll study it again this weekend. But if we, are, if we have been born again through the Spirit of God, making the Word of God alive to our heart, then why aren't our lives more remarkable? That's the question I have for us. Why aren't, aren't our lives more remarkable? Not to say that your life isn't remarkable, okay? Because I know where some of you started, okay? I know where you were before you came to Christ, and now, that, now after Christ, yeah, there's, it's pretty remarkable. There's no doubt about it. But what I'm saying is that I believe that there's much more to the Christian life than even what we are currently living for many of us. James is going to make that very clear to us. But also, I gave you some cross-references here, 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4. It says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. Knowledge means intimacy with Him who's called us by his glory and goodness. And that next verse, it even says that we are partakers of his divine nature. Are you kidding me? That's amazing. That, that gives us the potential and the possibility of pretty remarkable lives because his Holy Spirit comes to live within us. So if we've been born again, why do we struggle so much living, living up to that level of potential and privilege and power that has been given to us. Here's, a, here's uh, as we continue to work on these questions here, so why are we too easily overwhelmed by trials? That's what we talked about the first weekend of this teaching series, actually the first two weekends of this series. Now, those are outward pressures, and then overtaken by temptations. Those are the inward pressures. Now, here's a question, another question I asked you uh, the first weekend when, that we began this whole series when Nancy and I got back from our sabbatical, and that's right there on your notes. When was the last time you were awestruck by the wealth of his presence in your life? The wealth of his presence, the comfort of his love, the strength of his power. The significance of being called a child of God? Did you hear the glory of that, the weightiness of that? When was the last time that it wasn't just a concept, it was a reality deep in your heart? Why do we struggle so much experiencing that? And, and sometimes we find ourselves maybe even kind of going through the motions. Well, well James is going to answer that for us. Here, look at your notes there. James is going to teach us that the word of God, which was implanted in us at our spiritual birth, we'll see that in verse 21, now is the agency to grow us and to increase the life of God in us if we will do three things. He's going to teach us three things that we need to do. If I want to live a remarkable life, if I want to experience the wealth of his presence as, as a reality in my life, 
There's three things that I need to do. I need to receive God's word. I need to reflect on God's word. I need to respond to God's word. It's all about God's word. And so a God-changed heart will receive it, reflect on it, and respond to it. That's where we're headed with our study. But before we read our texts, unpack these notes, let's pray once again. Let's ask for God's help as he... uh, illuminates his word to us. So God, we are delighted to be here today. We love your presence. And we know that there is no spiritual discipline that is more important than a regular and consistent encounter with you through your word. So may we treasure your word as our most precious possession. Teach us, teach us how to receive your word, reflect on your word, and respond to your word. Let your perfect and liberating word transform the attitudes of our mind, the affections of our heart, and the actions of our life so that we can live more and more remarkable lives for your glory and our joy in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. So let's read through the text. I encourage you to bring your Bible with you. You can bring one like this or bring one that's electronic, but I would encourage you to follow along, maybe even try to take notes. If you're not good at taking notes and you're better off just listening, then then do that. But you want to make sure that you're really paying attention, and in particular, because James is going to talk about that this morning. Starting in verse 18, it was one of our verses last weekend, so that's where we pick up our reading and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Verse 18, chapter 1 of James, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Bringing us forth literally means we're born again by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing." If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself sustained, unstained from the world. This is the word of the Lord to us this weekend. Okay, good texts, hard-hitting texts. A lot here, and so three things that we need to do so a God-changed heart will receive God's word, reflect on God's word, respond to God's word. Let's take a look at this first one, receive God's word. We see that in verses 18 through 21. Here's your first fill in the blank. So you will receive God's word as one who belongs completely to God, as one who belongs completely to God. Look at verse 18. It was our very first verse in our text. Notice what he says, verse 18a, of his own will he brought us forth, that's being born again, by the word of truth. 
So we become born again when the Holy Spirit brings the word of truth, the Bible, home to our hearts. Better yet, it's when we hear the gospel message, when we hear that it's not good advice about what we must do, but it's good news about what he has done to make us right with him, we go, yes, I'm in. I want that. I give my life to Jesus. After all he's done for me, we become born again. That's what he's saying. We hear the gospel message. Look at verse 18b. So the gospel message does what? That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So it transforms our lives, first fruits. It was the first and best part of the harvest you gave completely to God. So here's the point here. If you are born again, you belong completely to God and no longer live the way you want to live, but you live the way God wants you to live. Your, your life is first fruits, totally, completely given to God. Let me give you a good cross-reference here, a couple verses. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? That is an amazing verse. I mean, just reading through it, it's like, what? you got to be kidding me. My body, a temple of the Holy Spirit? And so the Bible says that individually we're, we are temples of the Holy Spirit, but corporately, together, Desert Breeze Community Church, we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. He goes on, he says, Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own, but you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Bought at a price? Think what that means. The price was indispensable. No other price could be paid that would reconcile us to God. Not only that, it was unbelievably costly. The shed blood of God's son for you and I. He took our place for our sins on the cross to reconcile us to the Father. That's what he's talking about here. And now he owns us. By the way, he owns us anyway, even if we're not believers, because he created us. So he created us, therefore he owns us, and now he's redeemed us, therefore he owns us twice over. We belong to him. That's the point here that he wants us to understand. And so a God-changed heart will receive God's word as one who belongs completely to God. Here's the next point on your notes. A humble, teachable listener. A humble, teachable listener. That's what we will be as a result of this. So he owns me. I'm a humble, teachable listener. We see that in verse 19. He says, know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Verse 20, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, what in the world? Why would he put that in there? We're talking about hearing God. We're talking about being doers of the word and not hearers only. Why would he put this idea of let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to, to be angry? Well, as I begin to reflect on this more and more, I went back to the first week as we were talking about when we go through difficulties, life is filled with a lot of hardship and trials and difficulties. And remember, you can either become bitter or better in your response to those difficulties. Not the difficulties that make you bitter or better, it's your response to those difficulties. Remember, it's not what happens to you, it's what happens in you that either makes you or breaks you in life. It's not what happens to you, your circumstances is what happens in you, your character. It's how you begin to navigate that and evaluate the events of life, and they can either make you bitter or better. If it makes you bitter, this is the kind of person you're going to become. You're going to become bitter, proud, controlling person, and that you will be slow to hear, quick to speak, 
and quick to get angry. I reversed what he said, and that's exactly, that's why he's saying that we need to be, what did he say? Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to get angry. And the reverse of that would be someone who is becoming bitter, despair, self-pity, self-absorbed. Think about that. A bitter, proud, controlling, any controlling people here? Everybody raise your hand. That's all of us. Everyone, everyone. We're all controlling. That's the essence of trying to play God. I want my life to go a certain way. And when it doesn't, I'm mad. Those people better step to it. Whoever those people are, could be your, your bride, your wife, you know, whatever, whoever, your kids, the, your coworkers. Because I want life, and if life will go this way, I'm going to feel better about myself because we build our sense of happiness on our circumstances as opposed to on Christ, regardless of our circumstances. And so the response to that, when things aren't going our way, a bitter, proud, controlling person is slow to hear, quick to speak, and quick to get angry. I'm going to make my point. I want you to hear me out. I'm, oh, like, as opposed to being humble. I'm teachable and a listener because I'm not in control. God's in control and I can relax. I don't need to get all stressed out here. I don't need to try to make my point. See, I, I think it's beautiful. Hebrews 12, 15 says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and a bitter root grows up and causes trouble and defiles many. It grows up in your heart, causes trouble within your own life and, and defiles many. Bitterness will keep you from hearing God. What happens over time, you take all these hits, and if you don't process these hits appropriately, over time, listen to me, your heart becomes hard. Bitter, despair, angry, I don't like how my life's going, resentful, and he's just saying, man, you, if you have that attitude, you're not going to hear God. You're not going to be able to relate to God. God's not going to be able to speak to your life. So he's saying here that if our lives, our hearts are born again, a changed heart will receive God's word as one who belongs completely to God, a humble, teachable listener, and not proud, bitter, and defensive. And in fact, part of this means that we come under the authority of God's word, authority of God's word. It's interesting in verse 25, he calls God's word the perfect law. When you hear Jesus talking about God's word, he, he refers to, even when he's referring to the Psalms, he refers to it as the law of God. Wait a minute, those are the songs, Psalms, they're not the law. And then you even see in the Old Testament where they'll refer to the whole of the Bible as the law. Now, why would, why would the writer here, James, refer to God's word as, all of God's word as law? We're not just talking about his law. There's a part of God's word that is law, but he's actually, actually saying that all of it is law. Why would he say that? Why would he refer to it as the perfect law? Because law means it's your standard for life and living, and faith, and, and it's important, it's, it's, it's what you always go back to. Now, here's what's interesting, is that you can't say that something is crooked unless you have a straight edge somewhere. Would you agree with that? So if someone says, oh, that's crooked, that's not right, or, you know, that's wrong, and then if you were to ask them, press them a little bit, say, so why is that wrong? Well, it, well, it just is. Well, it's got to be more than just is. It's, you have a, what do you have a basis for that? And we live in a culture today where people tend to do that. If you start pushing them about why they think certain things are right and wrong, they couldn't really give you a foundation. But as believers, when we say something is crooked, our straight edge is the perfect law. It's God's word. 
We go back to his perfect law. Why is it perfect law? Because listen to me, in his wisdom and love, he's established how he wants us to live because he wants us to flourish. He has our best interest at heart. That's why the writer is saying perfect law. And so we always go back to that. We say, hey, wait, 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 that's not right. Well, why, do you, why is that not right? Because God's word says it's not right. And so we, we submit to the authority of God's word. God's word is our straight edge that we come back to regularly. Now, this authority, being that it's our authority, the perfect law, is that we don't stand over it, as I've seen many people do, stand over it and look at it and say, I like this, I don't like that, I like this, I don't like that, I like this, I don't like that. I've heard people actually, as they study God's word, sometimes act like that. And actually, we stand under God's word and it has authority over us, and so God speaks to us and says, I like this, I don't like that. I like this, oh, not how you got, that's a bad attitude, that's wrong, that's not according to what I have is in your best interest. So you're submitting to that authority, perfect law. And, and so a person who is receiving, a person who has a changed heart will receive God's word as one who belongs completely to God, a humble, teachable listener who loves to have God tell you how to live. That's your next fill in the blank. You just love having God tell you how to live. Look at verse 21. He says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness, humility, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. What is he talking about there? He's talking about repentance. Is it when God comes and says, hey, I like this, but I don't like that in your life, you go, okay, God, you're right. I'm gonna turn from that. I'm gonna turn towards you, my Savior. That's what he's saying. He's saying there's a repentance that begins to take place in your life. In fact, it even goes beyond on that idea of repentance. What, what motivates that repentance? It's the goodness of God. Psalm 1, 1 through 3 puts it this way. Blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of the sinners or sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in God's law. There he, he's using that idea again. Standard for life and living and faith. So, but his delight is in God's law and he meditates on it day and night and he will be like a tree planted by rivers of living water, streams of water. You know what goes on next? It's quite beautiful. It's really amazing. A tree planted by rivers or streams of living water. His leaf will not wither. He will bear fruit in season. Whatever he does, he will prosper. That's amazing. It's good stuff. But he delights in God's word. He allows God's word to bring correction and redirection to his life. And so you got that, that distinct uh, difference there. Psalm 119, I love this. He says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I love honey. Anybody like honey? Oh, you know what I do every morning? You don't want to know, do you? Okay, I'm going to tell you anyway. Here's what I do. I have an Americano. I got a couple shots hot, steamy, hot water, put a couple shots in there, and then I put local honey in there. <sighs> Little cinnamon honey, Americano, gets my morning going. 
I love honey, but I don't love it as much as God's word because what really gets my morning going is as I begin to listen to God's word and I study God's word. They didn't really have all the sweets that we have in our day, so when they talk about honey, so you can almost put any word in there. I mean, what's your favorite dessert? How about coconut cream pie? Mm, Let me read it like that. How sweet are your words to my taste? Sweeter than coconut cream pie to my mouth. (laughs) Woo! I love that. So my question for you, is that how sweet God's word is to you? I just love having him tell me how to live my life. I love hearing from him. I want to hear from him. I'm desperate to hear from him. It's sweeter than honey to my mouth. Let me read to you a story here by George Mueller. kind of helps us to kind of understand maybe a little bit more of uh, this idea of of seeing it like, like what we're saying here, sweeter than honey to our lips. George Mueller, who immersed himself in the care of thousands of orphans in the 1800s, suffered from uh, bad health and the weight of stressful responsibilities. One day, he wrote in his journal, this morning I greatly dishonored the Lord by irritability manifested toward my dear wife. I can't really relate to that, but... Uh, okay, I can He said, he fell on my knees before God, praising him for having given me such a wife. Mueller didn't excuse his irritability. He knew his unhappiness and bad mood had displeased God and hurt his wife. He owned up to it. But George Mueller couldn't eliminate stress or occasional bad health. So what was his solution? Listen to what he says. He wrote, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. I saw that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the word of God and to meditation on it. I love it. That's what you need to make your heart happy in God every morning. Believe me, if you do that, you can face anything. You can face absolutely anything. And, and especially if you really understand, what is the Bible all about? I wrote this down on my notes that, that I think it kind of summarizes the Bible. The Bible invites us into the greatest love story ever told that concludes with the greatest party that never ends. That's what he invites us into. And as we interact with God through his word, okay, so it starts there. God changed heart will receive God's word as one who belongs completely to God, a humble, teachable listener who loves to have God tell you how to live. A God changed heart will... Oh, It gets a little bit more difficult with each of these. A God-changed heart will reflect on God's word. We see that in verses 22 through 25. How? Looks diligently. Looks diligently. Look at verse 23. A man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. So in verses 23, 25 through 25, he's making this contrast between two guys looking into God's word as a mirror. And this first one, he looks intently, but it's actually, it's kind of more of a glance. It's kind of more of like he's looking at a distance and saying, okay, yeah, okay, that's what I look like. And then he goes away from the mirror and he forgets what he sees. The second guy, verse 25, but the one who looks into 
the perfect law. So it goes from kind of a glance to a gaze, a gazing upon God's word and perseveres, so he perseveres, being no hearer who forgets. Now what's interesting about the, the second man, the Greek word literally means to stoop down, to stoop down, up close and personal with God's word. And he's referring to it as a mirror. How many have ever gone to one of those stories, one of those stores, and I think the first time I saw one of these was in Brookstone, one of those novelty shops, and it was a magnified makeup mirror with lights. How many have ever seen that before? How many have ever gone up and looked at one of those? It's frightening. It's frightening. We were, I think it was at a Brookstone. My wife says, come over here and take a look at this. Put your face right in here and look at this. And I went in there, and she kind of flipped the lights on. I go, whoa! Who is that? That's you. She said, that's what I have to look at it every day. I go, wow, I didn't know I had that many wrinkles. Yeah, you got even more than that, even what that sees. I see even more. She, she didn't actually say that that much, but she was kind of thinking that, I think. I was frightened. I mean, you see that? That's what he's talking about there. You stoop down and you look and you go, oh my goodness, why didn't someone tell me I looked like this? Well, we didn't want to. We, we didn't want to embarrass you. <laughs> it, that's, that's God's word. He just said, you stoop, you stoop down and have that up-close personal look. That's the, that's the contrast that he's talking about here. It's the same Greek word used when Peter looked intently into the tomb on Easter Sunday morning in Luke 24, 12. Peter saw the stone. In fact, it says that Peter ran to the tomb, and he saw the stone rolled away. The tomb was empty, and the grave clothes lying there. Do you think Peter was looking at the tomb kind of the same way we might study our Bibles, kind of with a yawn? <gasps> hmm. Hmm, an empty tomb. That's interesting. Let's see. What's next on the agenda? Are you kidding me? No, his mind is going crazy. His rational faculties are working overtime. I mean, I mean, he was saying, the stone is rolled away, the tomb is empty. What does that mean? What, what do those grave clothes mean? What else is going on? I mean, he was observing, he was interpreting, he was applying. I mean, he's looking intently at the grave, the empty grave. He was thinking out the implications. That's how we are to study the Bible every day. That's why he's saying this to us. How much time and serious thought do you give to Bible study? Do you take that up close and personal look and begin to dissect it, begin to work out the implications, say, what does this mean? How does this apply? God, what are you speaking to me? That's what he's saying that we should be doing. What is the writer saying? What is the big idea of the text? I mean, is there a sin to confess? Is there a promise to claim? Is there an example to follow? Is there a command to obey? Is, what, what is this telling me about you, God, so that I can learn how to interact with you better? What is it telling me about myself? And by the way, if you're not good at asking all those questions, uh, that's why one of the reasons why we give you the growing notes is to kind of work through that, and that's why it's important to be part of a small group but uh, if you have version, oh my goodness, they give you a whole truckload of inductive studies there for free. And usually most of those inductive studies just are, are asking questions about the text. You need to go to the text asking questions, working out the implications. We talked about this, uh, how important this is the very first weekend. Remember in James 1, 2, where it says, count it all joy. 
Count it all joy. And what does he mean by that? Count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds? How am I supposed to do that? And by the way, I remember I said, don't use this when someone's actually in the middle of tragedy. Count it all joy. Don't do that. That's the wrong application. But you, it's pre and post. And it's meant for us to kind of study so that we can have our hearts prepared for when we go through difficulties, that we can begin to think, wait, 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 wait. This is overwhelming, but if I think out the implications of what I have in Christ, I don't need to be in despair or feel hopeless because what he has, what he has for me, what he's doing is bigger than anything I'm facing. That's what he's saying. That's why we can have joy. And the opposite of joy is, is not sadness because you can still be sad and you can still grieve and you have to grieve and it's important, but you're not hopeless because you're thinking out the implications of what I have in Christ. Wait a minute, God, you're bigger than this. God, you're working in my life right now. You're gonna take the bad thing and work it for my good and the truly good things can never be taken from me. And in fact, I know that the best things are yet to come. You know that. You begin to walk out the implications of that. That's why he says, count it all joy. The word count means it's an accounting term. It's saying, think out the implications. Come on. If you're in despair, it's because you don't realize what you have in him. And so that's how we are to study God's word. We're to, we're to think about it, reflect on it, go, what does this mean? How does this apply to my life? How would my life be different if this truth was explosively alive, that I am a temple of the Holy Spirit? If that was explosively alive in my heart, what difference would it make in my life? Oh, my goodness. All the difference in the world. It would make all the difference in the world in how you live your life. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. You have the God of the galaxies within you to love you, to guide you, to empower you. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a big thing. Now, I've got to get something off my back here, okay? And so let's just say that this is kind of a therapy session for Pastor Ray. Okay? And you guys are my therapist. And so let me, let me walk through this. I just I have to say, I was mowing my lawn this last week, and I got stung by a wasp on the shoulder. went right through my clothes. It felt like an ice pick right through the, right here, and it, and it swelled up, swelled up pretty bad. I went into the house, and I said, uh, honey, Nancy, Nurse Nancy, would you, uh, uh, that hurt, that hurt. And she said to me, count it all joy, my brother. <laughs> That's what Nurse Nancy said to me. And I said, have you been paying attention to what I've been teaching? That's the wrong application. I'm in pain right now. I'm needing a little comfort. And she said, did you hear me? I said, count it all joy, my brother. And I said, come on, Nurse Nancy. I need some comfort. And so anyway, we had some fun with that. And, uh, and she did uh, get some help. She, uh, well, I came to church that next week. It was still kind of swollen up, trying to figure out what I need to do about it. She got a hold of Dr. G, who uh, attends here, Gutierrez uh, Felipe, who's a really neat guy. And he took one look at it and said, looks like you're going to lose your arm. And, uh, <laughs> and I go, are you two together? Are you kind of like on each other's? You guys on the same team here, or what's, what's going on here? And, uh, and if you don't lose your arm, you're going to probably die. So uh, start praying right now. No, he was really cool about it. He gave me some suggestions what I needed to do, and, and then the swelling went down, and then uh, Nancy never did apologize, though. Now, I say that all in fun. She is a sweetheart. But, but that's, uh, that's thinking out the implications as you think out. Count it all joy. Think out the implications of what we have in Christ. And then applies personally. That's the next one. Applies personally. So reflect on God's word. Look diligently. And then apply personally. Look what he says in verse 23. Looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. Verse 24. For he looks at himself. 
for he looks at himself. So when we read and study God's word, it is God's personal active presence in our lives. Think about that. So when you pick up God's word, it is God's personal active presence in our life. How do I know that? Well, uh, Hebrews 4.12, it says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Also, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. It's like the breath of God on our lives. Have you ever gotten so close to someone? Maybe it's kind of loud in here, and so you kind of lean over to somebody you're sitting next to, and they're whispering something in your ear, and you kind of feel their, their breath on your ear. You go, oh, don't do that. Your breath smells. No, uh, <laughs> hopefully they've got good breath. But that, you're that close. So what I'm just saying is that when you're reading God's word, it's his breath. It's life. You're interacting with him. It says, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So, so in the Bible, we actually hear God speaking and also meet God himself when we respond with trust. I mean, this, this book is alive and powerful. God is speaking to us. Good night. Don't just pick it up just like, oh, whatever. Yeah, okay, that was a good verse. No. Interact with the living God is what he's saying. God breathed. We can interact with him. We can know him. We can experience him. Now, real quick, I'm going to have you do this. Discuss it with the folks sitting around you. There are two fundamental or primary characteristics of a healthy relationship. Because we're talking about applying it personally. And so, so there's two characteristics uh, to healthy relationships, not just horizontally, but also vertically in our relationship with God. Now, some of you, when I give you the answer, you're going to go, oh, of course. But, but you're going to probably go all over the map with this. Uh, last night's crowd didn't do so well. First uh, crowd, uh, they did a little bit better, but I think that you guys will probably even do better, okay? Because I think you guys are more awake. I mean, it is almost noon, okay? <laughs> and so d discuss it with the folks sitting next to you. What are the two fundamental characteristics of healthy relationships, two characteristics. If you have these, you got healthy relationship going on. Real quick, do that. Okay, what, do you, what are you guys coming up with? How about over here? You guys yell out to me. What do you guys have? Anything? Okay, don't everybody answer at once. Communication. Okay, that's good. That's good. Trust. Somebody said trust. Okay, those are all good. Somebody said love and respect. Oh, that's good. That's good. You guys are good. Ooh, this is, you guys are good over here. Okay, how about this crowd right here? You guys have any more to add to that? Honor. Honor. Okay, those are good. Those are good. Okay. Honesty. Okay, how about over here? You guys, did they get all the answers over here? Okay, did you, could you think of anything else? Humility. Okay, that's all good. Okay. Quality time. Okay, that's good. They're all good, but they're all wrong. Okay, everybody's wrong. Everybody's, no, no, okay, you guys, were, you, guys were, you guys were hitting on it. Here they are. Love and truth. Love and truth. 
Mutual giving and receiving of love and truth. Some of you heard, I heard it from uh, many of you as you guys were yelling it out to me. But mutual giving and receiving of love and truth. Now imagine if Nancy and I are just sharing a lot of truth to each other about things that we don't like about each other. Truth, truth, truth. That's not going to go so well, okay? It's not going to go well, but it needs to be in the context of love. I need to know that she loves me. She needs to be able to express that to me. And I share those words with her too. That I do things for her, she does things for me, we have a lot of love in that foundation, then we can speak truth. Truth can come in two ways. It can be convicting kind of truth, hard, hard words to listen to, but it can also be comforting truth, things that we need to hear. It would be obviously associated with love. So there needs to be mutual, if you look at your healthy relationships, there will always be mutual giving and receiving of love and truth back and forth, and when you have unhealthy relationships, you have a breakdown of one of those or both of those. I mean, if you got one person that all they want to do is speak the truth, and the other one's trying to be loving at the same time, it's not going to be a healthy relationship. The same thing goes for a relationship with God. There should be a mutual giving and receiving of love and truth. There's got to be times in your life when you are overwhelmed by his love. And you realize, you go, oh my goodness, and this is what will, will dawn on you. You'll go, no one in the universe has ever loved me like you. And you're overwhelmed by that. You just go, oh my goodness. I can't believe I'm so loved by you, God. And there's that sense of it. It's not just a concept. It's a reality in your heart. You're overwhelmed by that. And then there's got to be those times where he just he speaks to you and you go, oh my goodness, I'm a mess. I mean, you're looking up close and personal in that mirror and with the lights on and you go, oh gee, I thought I was doing better. He goes, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> You're messed up. Thank you. And that's how you would respond. You just go, because he loves me so much, of course he's going to point those things out to you. He loves you. So there's that mutual giving and receiving of love and truth. So not only is he telling you that he loves you, but you're telling him, oh, God, I love you. I wake up in the middle of the night and just say, God, I love you. Thank you. Thank you for being in my life. I've never been more loved than what I than what I've experienced in knowing you. Thank you. Thank you for the truth, the truth of your word, that I have your word, and as it guides and directs me, and as it, it gives me the, what I need, as I manage my life, and as I go about my day, and all the things that happen, and so there's that mutual giving and receiving of love, of love and truth. So there should be this comforting and then convicting happening, this combination of, of two things in uh, if you aren't willing to listen to everything God has to say, eventually you won't be able to hear anything he has to say. If you refuse his convicting voice, you won't be able to hear his comforting voice. There have been people that have left Desert Breeze, and God bless them, and God have mercy on them, that they left because they didn't like the convicting voice. Uh, power of God's word being presented here. They wanted to go to a church. It was all about comfort. I feel more comfortable over here. They don't say mean stuff like you, Pastor Ray. It's like, I didn't know I said any mean stuff, but uh, I'm just teaching what the Bible says, and James is pretty hardcore. He's convicting. So you know you got a healthy relationship when there's from time to time you walk in here and go, oh my goodness, I think he was speaking right to me. That was convicting. God loves you. He convicts us not to shame us, but to woo us. It's a greater level of intimacy and liberty in him. You're never going to be more free than when you are fully devoted to him and following him and enjoying his love. And so, 
If you refuse his convicting voice, you won't be able to hear his comforting voice. How many are familiar with the movie Stepford Wives? Stepford Wives, familiar with that movie? It's a great training movie. You guys laugh. It's a horrible training movie, isn't it? Yeah, it's not a training movie. Not a training movie. And in fact, these guys kill their wives. And then they have these robots that look just like their wives. And, they're, and these robots just kind of run around, kind of like robot-like, and just flutter their eyelashes, you know, bat their eyes and go, yes, dear, yes, dear, yes, dear. That's, that's not a bad idea, actually. But... Uh, <laughs> We could get a little more cooperation from you. No, you don't want a relationship with a robot. But see, we turn God into like a Stepford God oftentimes. Listen to what uh, Timothy Keller says. He says, only if your God can outrage you and make you struggle will you know that you worship the real God and not a figment of your imagination. That's good. So when you begin to apply it personally, so you look diligently, you apply it personally, there should be this combination of both conviction and comfort happening in your life. And then we got to do it consistently. Does it consistently? That's your next fill in the blank. Does it consistently? And he says here, the law of liberty and perseveres. The law of liberty and perseveres. And so uh, this, is, this is what's interesting. Law of liberty. Why is he calling law of liberty? Law. Laws don't sound like they're liberating. No, no, no. God is not a restrictor. He's a liberator, and he's established in his word how he wants us to live. And he's saying, hey, in my wisdom, in my infinite wisdom and a perfect love for you, this is how I want you to live. And by the way, when you live according to this, you will flourish. Now, I know we live in a society today where we would define freedom as no restrictions. I can do whatever I want to do. That's not freedom. That sounds more like chaos. And that's where we're headed as a culture. Because everybody's kind of doing whatever they want to do within reason. There are some laws that prevent that, thank God. But God's saying, no, no, my laws bring freedom. Freedom is not the absence of limitations and constraints, but it is finding the right ones, those that fit our nature and liberate us. So what do you think? You think a fish, if you took a fish, you catch a fish, you put him out of the water... Do you think that's good for him over on the shoreline? He looks like he's alive. Look at him. He's flipping and flopping back and forth. Yeah. He's fully alive now. You, you set him free from the water. That's crazy. You know better than that. Why is he flipping and flopping? Because he's happy? No. In fact, you put him back in the water, he's like, whoa. No, 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 no. He's going to die. And it's because he's not free without limitations. He's free only within the limitation of being in the water. The fish must honor its design. It is designed for water, not for land. Real freedom is finding the right restrictions. We were designed to know, serve, and love God supremely. And when we are faithful to that design, we flourish. We flourish in all of our life. And he also says, and perseveres. So the law of liberty and perseveres. What does that mean? You never give up even when it's hard. Sustain commitment to bringing the word of God into your life. I've heard this many times before. I've tried reading the Bible and I'm not getting anything out of it. So I'm just going to quit. Well, you certainly won't get anything out of it by not reading the Bible, okay? And so you need to persevere. 
I mean, believe me, I'm the guy that gets up here regularly and teaches, and there are times I pick up the Bible and I'm studying for the next week, and I'm going, oh my goodness, this doesn't make sense. God, help me. And I have to dig and dig and work and persevere and cry out to God and say, God, I want to know you. I need to understand you. This doesn't make any sense to me. Reveal yourself to me. That's why Joshua 1.8, it says, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night, and then you'll be able to do everything that is written in it, and you'll be prosperous and successful. Those are the words of God to Joshua before they went into into the promised land. He wasn't saying the promised land is going to make you successful and happy. No, he's saying it's my word. He's, he's saying, don't let this book of the law depart from your mouth. There it is, that, that again, that whole book, all of God's word. Do not let it depart from your mouth. Think about it. Talk about it. Meditate on it day and night. And then you'll be able to do everything that is written in it. You'll be able to respond to it and live it out. And then you'll be prosperous and successful regardless of your circumstances, is what he's saying. And this will prepare you when you go into the promised land. When was the last time... Here's that first question I asked you. When was the last time you were awestruck by the wealth of his presence, the comfort of his love, the strength of his power, the significance of being called a child of God? It was not just a concept, it was a reality in your heart. The only way you can get it from your head to your heart is perseverance. To do it consistently so why do we struggle so much to reflect on God's word by looking diligently applying personally and doing it consistently well listen to what R.C. Sproul says he says uh, this in a a book uh, titled Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life Donald S. Whitney it's a great book Donald S. Whitney is quoting R.C. Sproul, he says, why do so many Christians neglect the study of God's words? Sproul said it painfully well. Here then is the real problem of our negligence. We fail in our duty to study God's word, not so much because it is difficult to understand, not so much because it is dull and boring, but because it is work. Our problem is not a lack of intelligence or a lack of passion. Our problem is that we are lazy. that hurt that's true that's true and in fact oftentimes people will say well I really do value his word no you don't no 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 Pastor Ray God's word coming to church prayer I can can actually tell just by what you practice if I were to just look at your behavior it's going to tell me everything I need to know about you Because you see, the things we value, we prioritize. The things we prioritize, we practice. So it's more than just being lazy. It's really, the reason why we're lazy is because it's not a value. We don't really see God's word for what it is. Because believe me, if you really believe that you're encountering the God of the galaxies, oh my goodness, nobody could keep you from this book. You would prioritize it and you would It'd be a practice in your life, man. You would take, and you're not going to be reading a lot. You should maybe even take a little verse. Something would stand out to you on that morning reading, and you would take that with you throughout the day. You would reflect on it. You wouldn't forget about it. And you'd say, God, if this, if this was explosively alive in my heart, what difference would it make in my life? And he'd say, it's going to make all the difference in the world. Let my Holy Spirit make it alive to you so that you can be different in how you're responding to life. 
Most of us, uh, oh, remember we said this during our Temptations uh, uh, series, uh, not series, but the last weekend's message, is that we always do what we most want to do. Remember that? We always do what we most want to do. Jonathan Edwards, you are free to choose, but you are always a slave to your greatest desire. So it's really about desire. It's stirring up those desires. Now, all of us are in one of three categories here. Let me just go through this really quickly. I got a quote, and then we got our last point, and we'll be finished up. But uh, there's three places where we all are, three stages where we might be. There's that sweet spot of really experiencing you know, that, that wealth of his presence. And, and there are some of you, and I've had some people talk to me this morning and say, yeah, that's where I'm at. I'm right now. It's not, a, it's not a concept. It's a reality. I have a sense of his presence in my life. And I go, whoa, that's fantastic. I, I wish I could always live there. I don't always live there. But that's one stage. The, the other second stage would be that you desire that. And because you know that uh, once you've tasted of his presence, his absence is unbearable. Not that he goes anywhere. It's just that you don't have a, a sense of his presence on your heart. It's more kind of a concept. So you're wanting it down deep in your heart. So you have that desire and you're praying, oh, God, make your word real to my heart. And then there's the third stage. The third stage would be that person that just doesn't even have a desire and doesn't even care that they have a desire. But at least they understand. And in fact, they even begin to realize that, you know what, I have a desire and I find more delight in my favorite football team than I do in God. And I know that that's inconsistent with who God is because if I could even get a glimpse of God, I wouldn't feel that way. So if you're in that category, that stage, you, you repent. You just say, oh, God, help me. Stir up within me a desire to know you. And God, work on my heart. Listen to what uh, John Piper says in, a, in his book, A Hunger for God. If you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things, and there's no room for the great. If we are full of what the world offers, then perhaps a fast might express or even increase our soul's appetite for God. I've had to fast things in my life because I felt like they were taking control of my life more so than my heart and passion for him. So a God-changed heart will receive, reflect, and here's the last one, respond to God's word. Respond to God's word. So this even gets even harder as I respond to what he's speaking to me. Verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Verse 25, being a hearer who forgets being no here who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Verses 26 through 27, listen to what he says. Now, if anyone thinks that he is religious, he's using that in a positive way. Oftentimes we use the word, he's very religious, in a bad way. He's actually using this in a very positive way. He's just saying, if you, are truly, if you truly have a changed heart, if you are truly a Christian, if anyone thinks that he's religious and does not bridle his own tongue, his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So here's what he's saying is that there should be a, this gap, there should be this narrowing of this gap between our beliefs, what I believe, what I profess, and how I behave and how I live that out. There should be that narrowing. That's called sanctification, that I just don't believe that God loves me. I'm having an experience of his love, and it chases away the fears. I'm not as anxious as I used to be because it's transforming me. I, I'm able to manage difficulties differently 
more successfully because I'm having a sense of his presence on my heart. So there's that narrowing. I'm beginning to live that out and it's seen in my life. Now, I found this really fascinating here too of what James is bringing together because we live in a world today that's quite, quite interesting when it comes to our liberal churches and conservative churches. Liberal churches tend to talk about uh, justice for the oppressed, but they accept people's sexual lifestyles without being judgmental. That's very typical to many liberal churches in America today. And then conservative churches, and I'm speaking generally here, conservative churches tend to talk about traditional family values and are against immorality, but they don't speak up for the oppressed. They only give lip service to what's happening with the poor. But the Bible and James pulls these together because in these verses, verses 26 and 27, you have social responsibility and personal purity. Look what he says. Here's your fill in the blank. So respond to God's word in speech, verse 26b, bridle his tongue, in service, verse 27b, visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and then in separation, verse 27c, keep oneself unstained from the world. You see those all come together. So speech, I'm going to be more careful about what I'm saying because it's a window into my heart. Service, I'm going to roll up my sleeves. I'm going to get involved, even here at Desert Breeze. I'm going to help out with the youth or the children or greet or do any number of things and opportunities that we have here. And then separation, I'm going to live a different kind of life that people are going to notice. Now, when you look into the Word of God, don't just see yourself what we need to also see, we need to see the only man who ever completely fulfilled the law because none of us can completely fulfill the law. We come up short. So we need to look to him, the only one who ever completely fulfilled the law. There are two ways to fulfill the law. You either keep it or you pay the penalty for breaking it. Either way, the law is satisfied. Here's what's fascinating about Jesus. Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life and fulfilled the law once then he went to the cross and died and paid the penalty and fulfilled the law twice. He took the curse our law-breaking deserves so that we could get the blessing his law-keeping earned. Here's the last statement on your notes. Those who know that salvation comes by God's grace and not their works have an inner Holy Spirit dynamic of grateful joy that empowers the greatest works for God's glory. We don't obey him to get his blessing. We have his blessing, therefore we obey him. Even though it's imperfect, he forgives us, loves us, redeems us, continues to bring about sanctification in our lives Brindley and Phil are going to come up and, and lead us in a song and, and right after I pray. And I want you to hear the words of this song and let it minister to your heart. Show us Jesus. That's our heart cry when we study God's word. But let me pray, and then they'll do the song. So, Father God, thank you for sending your son to take the curse our law-breaking deserves so that we can receive by grace through faith in him what his law-keeping earned. May that produce in us an inner Holy Spirit dynamic of grateful joy that would empower a receiving, reflecting, and responding to your perfect and liberating word, living remarkable lives for your glory and our joy in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.